Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. And some stinkers. Well, true. But you know, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. In season three, we covered even more great adaptations like The Night of the Hunter and It Happened One Night, both part of our Couples on the Run series. We talked about No Country for Old Men. The Coen brothers so rarely adapt someone else's work. We had some fun rom-com adaptations like About a Boy, based on the Nick Hornby novel, and Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, adapted from Rachel Cohn and David Levithan's book. In our terribly and naively named foreign language series, we discussed the brilliant City of God and the Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which I won't ever be able to watch again, ever. But could you read the original memoir? I don't know, maybe? We had our Richard Dysart series with adaptations like The Day of the Locust and Being There. Plus, we had that fantastic interview with the man himself. The <laughs> one where we had him sit on the floor? Because this chair was so squeaky. <laughs> Good times. We did our first Tom Hanks series with Forrest Gump, adapted from Winston Groom's novel, plus Apollo 13, based on Lost Moon by Jim Lovell. And we did another year series looking at films from 1981, including Das Boot, Gallipoli, and Thief, all based on books. Listeners can dive deeper into all of these original stories and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book, play, movie, video game. Video game. <laughs> you bet. We have talked about some video game adaptations as well. It doesn't matter the source. Just follow the link. Every purchase supports the podcast. Check out the full list at thenextreel.com slash originals and get reading, watching, performing, or playing today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. 
In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. Okay. Of, of everything, we're, we're not that, like Gandalf the White just, just revealed himself. Guess what made her? Of all the things that are across that much of The Lord of the Rings, guess what caused her to have the nightmares? Um, I find it interesting. Wow. I, I don't know. I mean, that, that film, I can imagine a lot of stuff giving nightmares, but what you're sort of setting me up. I am. Most of the stuff, surprisingly, does not cause her any fear or nightmares at all. I'm really surprised. Is it involved? Is, it, does the thing that causes nightmares involve uh, orcs? No. Um, and that's, I thought, would cause her nightmares, but not in the least. Uh, does it involve heights? No. Uh, okay. Gollum, Gollum creeps her out. She doesn't yeah. like looking at Gollum. And I told her, like, once once she saw Gollum appear in Two Towers, she wanted me to um, skip it. I'm like, honey, he is in the entire rest of the series. <laughs> skip if you can't watch Gollum, part. we're going to have to wait until you're ready to watch Gollum because he is in everything. She's kind of okay with Gollum right now. But the thing that scares her more than anything, and it's it's interesting to me because it's not something I ever put any sense of fear in, but it's the eye of Sauron. Oh. That eye, when when Frodo puts the ring on, and that eye <laughs> like zips across the landscape and yeah. stares at him and talks to him, she woke up in the middle of the night terrified because she has this little light next to her light switch so you can see where the light switch is and you have always called that sauron (laughs) i've called it the eye of sauron put your sauron on (laughs) don't worry honey sauron's watching sauron's always watching (laughs) you're a horrible (laughs) father that's awesome oh you're wicked no but that's that's it i mean she was terrified of sauron and i just never put any stock in that as anything scary at all Wow, but I guess it is. It does. They, Peter Jackson and his team do create pretty overwhelming moments when that eye is looking at Frodo. Do you? So you just watched it, right? We just we just after watched. You've seen, after Fellowship. you saw the first time you saw the Desolation of Smaug, you watched it. Do you see Benedict Cumberbatch in the Eye of Sauron? <laughs> I. I, I, I looked really hard, but I did not see it there. <laughs> then you didn't look hard enough. <laughs> I guess I didn't. He's just much deeper in there now. It's more like now I'm just looking at his foyer. <laughs> <laughs> it's a well-appointed flat. It's a walk-up. Uh, it's really just the sitting room now. <laughs> you saw uh, You saw Wolf of Wall Street? I did. I did. Uh, full of excess, 
full of excess. Isn't that sort of what it was supposed to be full of? It is. It's full of excess, both from a standpoint of the characters characters (laughs) in the film, as well as the filmmaker making the film, the storytellers (laughs) behind it. It it is excess from from beginning to end. And uh, I mean, it's... It is a very enjoyable film. It just makes me sick, though. <laughs> like this is the lifestyle. Not the th- here. Are the the two things that make me sick. One is that this is how these people were living, and this debauchery is what was essentially controlling corporate interests in our country. And two, that people not only then looked up to him and wanted to be him, but still look up to him and want to be him. Yeah, that's not great. It doesn't it doesn't bode well for the world as we know it. That's too bad. Yeah, it is. This is thenextreel.com. My name is Pete Wright. That over there is Andy Nelson, and we spoil movies. And if you want to see uh, all of the movies that we have spoiled in the past, don't worry, they're old movies, uh, you can head over to thenextreel.com. Catch the blog stylings of Steve Sarmento, nextreel.com slash blog. You can join the conversation on Facebook or Google+. And uh, we, please, we appreciate it if you subscribe to the show in iTunes and, you know... If you happen to uh, leave us a review in iTunes, a five-star review, you know those reviews, they help other people discover them. There's a lot of hubbub about reviews right now, but really, it's sad but true. If you listen to the show, we sure would appreciate a review. Let's do trailers, shall we? Let's do them. I'm going to do mine first. And I think it's unfair of me because I went first last week, but I think your trailer merits the closing position. All right. Uh, and and mine is is kind of the it's the flyweight uh, <laughs> this week. Uh, I'm doing a believe it or not a Dylan McDermott film. That's Straight right. Out the heels of Olympus has fallen. You heard me. <laughs> <laughs> Dylan McDermott. You know his name's not even Dylan? Did you know that? I didn't. What is his Mark name? Mark Anthony McDermott. What? Right? That's cray-cray. Guy's done a... <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, would you knock it off? <laughs> Sorry. Hey, you're trying to be serious. All right, go ahead. Tell me all about uh, Mark Anthony. You know... <laughs> I can't... I'm hating all over you right now. <laughs> uh, film is by director Michael Solomon. Now, Michael Solomon is uh, he's known for some things. Well, yeah, and this is interesting. Speaking last week of cinematographers yeah. who turn to become directors, Michael Solomon is one of them, and he's done some decent stuff. You know, he did some he did some so stuff. stuff well, he did some stuff that I as a cinematographer that I'm all over the you know that we talk about either in in love or uh, mockery all the time. For example, uh The Abyss. I think we talk about with some love. Absolutely. Stealing Heaven. I think we talk about perhaps with a, a dose of mockery. 
Maybe just a little bit. They happened uh, almost close to each other. Arachnophobia, I think we talk about uh, with a little bit of love. Creepy. Backdraft. Looks good. Right? So there's, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that this guy's got going on. He had some in the in the late 80s, early 90s, and then he got into um, uh, directing in the late 90s, uh, through the 90s and the aughts. And now he is, uh, he's doing these films. I think he does better when he's directing TV than when he's directing films. I think one of his early films was Hard Rain, which was uh, not one of the better films out there. Hard Rain. Uh, wait a minute. Don't tell me that. I know that one. That Was that like a Mark, uh, what's his name, Wahlberg or? No, that's Christian Slater. Christian Slater and Morgan Freeman, yeah. And a big yeah. rainstorm. Right. Bank robbers in a flood. I remember that now, yeah. I remember that. Uh, old Randy Quaid. Mm-hmm. Uh, you think he's better on TV is what you're saying. Yeah, he's done lots of TV work. I well, mean, he I mean, really has become a, a TV director. It's funny that you say that. First of all, uh, the coma. He did the coma, coma uh, reboot miniseries, the two mm-hmm. two parts. And, um, you know, I, that was interesting. You know, I, I don't know. Not that coma needed a reboot. Uh, but it felt like what it was. And then when I look at the trailer for Freezer, it feels like coma. Yeah. It feels very very much the, like the, a TV. The feel of it. Kind of the, and maybe it's because, you know, so much of Dylan McDermott is held up for me in the practice. Um, <laughs> and and I have a hard time shaking that, even though he's done, you know, he's done plenty of other stuff. Um, it, it's written by uh, Tom Doganoglu. Do we know him? I don't personally. Shane Weisfeld, um, it, it, you know, they, they've got one credit. Uh, at least uh, Shane has one credit. That's Freezer. And uh, uh, Tom Doganoglu, Doganoglu, Doganoglu. Uh, he's written a bunch of other stuff, uh, shorts and, well, not a bunch of other stuff, a couple other things. $8 million short. He was in this short, $8 million, and you're fired. And now Freezer. So this is this mm-hmm. is essentially a... Uh, a, a bit of a first timer for a feature comes out twenty first of January twenty fourteen. I think it's going straight to uh, iTunes uh, as well. So, yeah, it uh, should be streaming pretty soon, I believe. Anyway, the story. We're even talking about the story. Robert is an ordinary man faced with an extraordinary circumstance. So, it's a movie. Is <laughs> that he is locked? That's the most vague description. I know, right? He's locked in a meat freezer by Russian thugs who believe that he owes them eight million dollars. Yeah. So, it. I mean, I gotta say, it would really suck being trapped in a freezer by people who think you owe them money. Well, and that's I why I would never that, want to be in that position. I don't like being. I don't like cold, and I don't like boxes. <laughs> so that's why I picked this trailer. <laughs> if there was a shark in there too, then all my fears would have been yes, realized. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, this is kind of a. We're, I guess it's not a great season for trailers right now. I'm not finding a whole lot exciting until I see yours, which. I have to tell you, you really brought it hard this week. You know, I'm pretty excited. I picked Stephen Chow's new film, Journey to the West, or as it's uh, called on IMDb, Journey to the West, colon, Conquering the Demons. It looks, I mean, if anyone who has watched any of Stephen Chow's previous films, I've only seen Kung Fu Hustle, but he also did Shaolin Soccer, which I missed, and CJ7. Uh, the God of Cookery. He's done lots of these kind of wacky, over-the-top comedy 
uh, kung fu sorts of films. Um, kung Fu Hustle is, I think, just one of the funniest. I mean, over-the-top comedy, lots of gore. I mean, it was pretty violent and gory and, and just over-the-top fun. Lots of fun. Journey to the West looks to be the same sort of film. It's about some demon hunters in kind of old-school uh, old Japan uh, hunting demons, basically. And they are... I don't know. I mean, there's there's a water demon, a pig demon. There's all these different people demons, and and you just see them fighting these demons, and like they punch them, and their face folds in, and just it's it's silly antics all the way through. Lots of lots of stunts, lots of big effects. I mean, it looks like it's going to be just nonstop fun. It's the it looks movie like you a want. It's the movie you want Forty Seven Ronin to be. <laughs> That's right. It's a total. <laughs> goofball comic book movie and uh i gotta say it looks like it's gonna be a lot of fun and i really can't wait to watch it i am excited about it it, it does it that giant giant catfish yeah that's <laughs> that had you had me at giant catfish go watch this trailer you find it at uh, the next reel.com uh it's gonna be just right there on the front page right now and it so. comes out march 7th in theaters and on itunes so you'll be able to see it however you want come march 7th look for it journey epic, to the west epic epic yep love it and now i think we should talk about this film jeepers creepers where'd you get those peepers peep show creep show where did you get those eyes and we Damn, got another ringtone. Yeah. You gotta stop doing that. And that's a clean in and a clean out. Oh, Andy. What was I thinking? <laughs> okay. Uh, I, you know, I listened to the show last week. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? We did Hudsucker Proxy. I remember. I you remember were, our Spears You were show. there. I, I was. I was physically present. Um, so I, you know, I I recognize that I may have, I may have talked too much. <laughs> I see where this is going. <laughs> I may have talked too much on this on that film, and and I I was excited about it, and I I may have I recognize that some listeners may have listened to that episode and said, you know what, Pete was really reaching that movie. There was I agree with Andy, that movie was just there just wasn't enough in that movie, and and Pete's just really reaching. You know. Um, I deeply want those people to pay real close attention to whatever you say about tonight's film. <laughs> I wow. I almost feel like I just want to not talk and see what happens. <laughs> In the 1930s, Hollywood was a place where dreams came true. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, in Radio Land. Where nothing was common or ordinary. And anyone could have riches and fame. And so they came from the Midwest and the South, from the Bible Belt and the Ivy League, from vaudeville stages and carnival midways, beckoned by a promise of sunshine and stardom, beauty, and romance. It was the most exciting, most wonderful, most glamorous place on earth. 33, take five. Hollywood. Karen Black is Faye Greener. She wanted more than stardom. She wanted to live her dreams. I'm in pictures. Only extra work now, but I haven't had a real chance yet. William Atherton is Todd Hackett. 
He loved Faye enough to believe in her fantasy. I like you a lot. I love you. Don't make me hurt you. You're very kind and clever. But I could only let a really rich man love me. I could only love someone criminally handsome. Donald Sutherland is Homer Simpson, who would do anything to make her dreams come true. I'm going to be a big star someday. It's the only thing in the world I want. It's good to know what you want. <laughs> you know, I always wonder what the point was of Homer Simpson. He's not Rockefeller. Stable, he's not. He respects me. Anything. Forgive me for such unworthy thoughts, but sometimes I wish I could tear it all down. The day of the locust, an unforgettable vision of love, success, and dreams. We're doing the day of the locust, uh, which is a uh, it's a 1975 John Schlesinger Schlesinger film. Starring uh, William Atherton, Karen Black, Donald Sutherland, Burgess, Burgess Meredith. Meredith. Oh, Burgess Meredith. And, uh, Jack of course, Haley of and, course and Richard, uh, Richard Dysart. Yes. There are a lot the of man. people in this movie. There are, there Billy are Barty, uh, yeah. yeah, Jack Earl Haley, as you said, uh, Gloria Leroy, uh, Madge Kennedy. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, uh, there are a lot of people. And even uh, uh, oh yeah, you said John Hillerman, right? I did. Yeah, okay. I, I should have. I should have if I didn't. Um, the the this this film is a uh, okay. I'm I'm gonna let me just get this out of the way. Um, there is a lot to I okay. Let me back up. There are <laughs> okay. Let me just start again. There are films that if you like movies, if you are a lover of cinema, that you that you really want to see, right? You want to have those in your sort of mental collection is having seen those films whether you like it or not no no no. that's the second the category see. no no, no. Oh. there's very you want to see you want those in your in your collection and then there are films you have to see <laughs> because that because you you just really believe that seeing that film is going to add something to your overall ability to talk about film and then there is this third category which are films that you really you can't explain that the only reason you're seeing them is because Andy told you to. <laughs> well, that's a very specific category. It's a, it's a, it's a short yet growing ironically list. Let me tell you, I like, there are things I like about this film. First of all, I like it's, it's based on the, the uh, it's based on the book by Nathaniel West. And the, and the book was written, when was the book? It was like in the thirties, right? 1939, 1939, 1939 okay. set in Hollywood uh, at the time of the great depression. And so it it definitely was a very timely novel when the yes. novel came out. And and I think I think it w- it was equally timely covering this uh, you know this in the in the, the mid 70s. Sure, absolutely. Uh, um and, and I I love that about it. And you know I'm I'm kind of a sucker for these cultural mirror films, right? I I love it when it, you know in contrast to last week I think this film is is uh is saying something. I look forward to hearing what that is. Uh <laughs> But I think it's saying something. What I love about it is the way it, the way it focuses on the fringe. This isn't a Hollywood film per se. We get sort of doused in Hollywood, but really this is on the peripheral, and and the characters we we end up really caring about are the are the periphery characters. There and and um, I, I just I love the position 
of uh, you know sort of where we are as as audience uh, yeah. in this film. And most of it I find sort of boring, and then it's kind of abusive to me. <laughs> And it, then it, it ends, and then it's just over, and I don't know what to make of it. So please, Andy, tell me now. I'm going to shut up now, and you tell me what to make of it. I don't. This is a. I've seen it twice now, and this is a film that is a total head trip. It really throws you for a loop. And the first time I watched it, I think I reacted much the way you did. I was like, "What did I just watch? I was just assaulted, and I have no idea what to make of this craziness." It really is. Uh, a mind-boggling journey into the darkest part of what Hollywood, uh, you know, turns people into in a way. Yeah, uh, especially back in the '30s, which is the specific era the film takes place in, and the novel, which we already said. But also, it really kind of expands across all of the time, and this it really could be almost set any day. This is really a film that could happen at any time about, like you said, the fringes, these people who are in Hollywood, who are um, either trying to uh, get in to Hollywood, trying to make it big, or once were big and, and, and aren't anymore and now are stuck kind of in the past and kind of reliving their old glory, kind of like a, uh, that whole Gloria Swanson, Sunset Boulevard sort of thing. That it it has this uh, you know this interesting veneer on it where everything you know they're it's all you know trying to make things beautiful but they're not and like the way that he takes when when Todd played by William Atherton first moves into this apartment he uh, takes takes the picture off the wall and sees this big crack on the wall and it's because of an earthquake that had happened and they never bothered fixing it because they liked it and instead of putting the picture back on it, he keeps the picture off and he puts a, a flower in the crack. So now you've got this crack down the wall with a flower in it. And I don't know, to me, watching it a second time now, it really kind of, that image really kind of spoke a lot about what this film is. You've got this kind of ugly veneer across you know much of society and, and in Hollywood in particular. And they're always trying to kind of gloss it over and put something pretty on it to... Uh, to make it into something that it's not. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. There's a lot of things going on in this film. It, it, it deals with a lot of these interesting uh, characters that are there. We've got Todd, who is uh, in the art department in this studio, and he falls for this woman who's an extra, played by uh, Karen Black. This is uh, probably her greatest performance. I mean, she's pretty wild in this film. Well, and, and you, you just, you know, I think in your overview of the film, you really, uh, you sort of, um, you present a, uh, a a kind of grand unifying theory of characters in this film, right? It, yeah. And, and it's really heralded by Karen Black, making Karen Black something that she is not, as, you know, right. a very uh, loose metaphor for Hollywood. Uh, it, in fact, ends up being um, wildly destructive, yeah, absolutely. I mean, she really kind of destroys everyone she comes into contact with as as beautiful as she makes herself, whether she's working as an extra or working as an always striving to work as an actress. I mean, even at one point saying she's not 
she's not going to take any extra work. She's only focusing on acting work. And then we never see her get any acting work. She just goes back to doing more extra work is what we see. Mm-hmm. And uh, But she always does seem to be kind of wanting wanting more and so she's kind of that that character that's always you know it's like that crack that you're putting the you know the 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 flower flower into into, right yeah that's that's exactly what she is and even at the end of the film you know she's at this premiere not as a star getting out of the car she's there as a fan she's in the crowd watching as as you know uh ginger rogers gets out of the car and and uh, she's she's still you know one of the mass that's that's drawn to this world and she wants to be part of that world but is on the outside banging the door trying to get in yeah and for me i think that's what a lot of the film is and you know there's i mean there's a lot of interesting aspects that we see we see you know this vaudevillian characters this door-to-door salesman that her father burgess meredith is we see cockfighting which kind of comes in as a strange fringe activity you've got this whole uh, church, you know, this like reborn Christian church that we kind of go into. Even the funeral, I find extremely interesting because it's not just a funeral when her father dies, but as Todd finds by sitting in the back of the the, the funeral, all of these people who are in watching the funeral of her father are really only there because they're basically they heard that Clark Gable was going to be at the on the funeral grounds or in the the cemetery grounds. And as soon as they hear that his his car has arrived, they all go running out of the funeral so that they can go go stalk Clark Gable. I mean, it's it's really a disturbing scene, right? Uh, you know, which so, is I mean, which it, is mirrored in many respects in the big uh, uh, Chinese theater, yeah, uh, escapade as the announcer is saying is screaming over and over how excited everybody must be when without, in fact they're driven to riot. Yeah, dry, uh, riot and murder, really. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, putting up this uh, this character, basically, you know, making a sacrifice out of him. I mean, it's horrifying. Yeah. The, the, this this depiction of Hollywood is possibly one of the most frightening depictions of Hollywood I've seen. It's, it, you know, it really, you, you keep seeing newspapers with big, important headlines of things going on at the time. Nobody is paying attention to the newspaper headlines at all. Like at one point... You know, they're with her extra buddies as they're all sitting down in a, a gully eating roast chicken on the fire. It's kind of a campfire. And instead of looking at the newspaper that he, you know, he uses it as a plate to put the chicken onto. And we see another chicken, or I mean, another chicken, another newspaper later um, outside the theater at the end at the big premiere. Nobody's paying attention to the big headlines in the newspaper. All people care about is this world of movie stars and you know, big shining lights and, and the gloss and the glamour of all of it. It's, it, it really paints a very frightening picture of society and Hollywood. And I think that's why, you know, I, I, after watching the first film, or the film the first time, I, I came back at it going, gosh, you know, I don't know if I liked it that much, but a lot of stuff stuck with me. Watching it a second time, I'm like, you know, I think I actually do like the film. It's just, it's a really disturbing film. It's not a film I would want to watch very often, but I think it's, uh, it's a really frightening uh, look at this world. Yeah, you know, I, I think that gets it. This film is a film about an era uh, and a, a microculture that uh, I think, 
it, it's unique because those who are in it, particularly those on the fringe, are both drawn into it and resentful of it. Yeah. Right? And that right. conflict is, is what we're celebrating in the Day of the Locust for yeah. me. Right in the middle of, I have to be here. I have to be here. I have to celebrate whatever inner calling, this inner demon. I have to exercise this demon, and Hollywood is the place I have to do it, and I hate myself for it. And the degree to which I hate myself for it is the degree to which I am driven to do horrible, demeaning things uh, to celebrate that that alienation. Uh, And I think we have... um, a, a a just sort of mod squad of like the bleeding. I mean, we get we get a a, a dwarf, uh, the cockfighting, a harem girl. I mean, the uh, uh, and uh, you know the androgynous child, yeah, uh, who ends up being stomped to death by the completely alienated and sex starved Homer Simpson, yeah, uh, played by terrifyingly by Donald Sutherland. Yeah, it's really, I think, one of his most disturbing performances. It really is. I wanted to, because of the just the level of disturbance, I really want to love his performance here. I think it's uh, it's it's hard to do, uh, but it's, I, it's, I definitely it appreciate it. Oh, yeah. It's definitely a hard character to like. It's a hard performance to uh, to really connect with, but it is pretty powerful. And watching his transition from this meek you could almost call him a naif you know he he's very uh, this is a world he's he lives in los angeles but you get a sense that he has never come in contact with anybody from the hollywood world until um, her father and subsequently faye end up in his house and at his doorstep and and basically tie him into this whole world and really lead him down a, a horrifying path of destruction Ugh. Uh, talk about Waterloo. You know, that, I, I, th- I'm not really sure what to make of the whole, the whole Waterloo is a, basically this whole production design element that Todd has been, uh, you know, told to design by his boss, played by Richard Dysart, Claude Esty, the uh, production designer of the film. And he, in the context of the film, not of the film itself, he tells him to, uh, you know, he's he's got to design this whole thing. And so he gets inspiration from when he is actually having this chicken camp out um, and the whole tree and the landscape with this hill. And he designs this big set that gets built and then they start shooting on it before... Uh, it's ready. They're, they get to it like three days or something before the the stage is actually ready, and it leads to the whole stage collapsing. It's it really to me speaks of Hollywood's interest in uh, money more than anything. And it, I think well, a lot as, of that. Com- yeah, as as uh, you know, we see more in the after effects. Yeah, right. I mean, we see this horrifying destruction as as the whole stage falls on people and everybody's injured and it's just this horrifying mess. Luckily, nobody's killed as they are saying as they as all of the heads are getting haircuts. You know, Richard Dysart 
as the production designer along with one of the heads of the studio, they're talking about, oh, you know, the insurance will cover it. Nobody died. We're in the clear. We had the signs up, even though Todd says, no, no, no signs were up. And they're like, oh, don't worry. Yeah, they were fine. Here, I want to buy you a haircut. As the head of the studio kind of woos him and into, you know, basically uh, complacence by giving him a haircut and basically putting that out of his mind. And even later when he talks to uh, uh, Claude Esty about the whole idea that those signs weren't up, he's just like, you know, it didn't, doesn't matter. Nobody was killed. It, you know, it's fine. It doesn't matter. It's all about the bottom line. It's, it's, you know, we would find a way to get past it and we would still put the movie out there and still have to make our money. Yeah. It's a machine. It's, it's, a, it's just like the corporate machine, you know, that we were talking about in uh, last week in uh, Hudsucker Proxy and all those other movies that we mentioned. It's another form of a corporate machine. It's not one company, though. It's, it's the whole, essentially the machine of Hollywood and how it cranks yeah. these movies out and how they put all this money in and they have to get it out there. And if people get hurt, well, people get hurt. You know what? We still got to make our money back. It is the entertainment industrial complex. Yes. Uh, so, okay, William Atherton, this was one of his earlier films. How'd he do? I, you know, I like him in this. Um, I think I, every time I watch this, I go, this is why I like him so much in Die Hard, because I think he works really well as, as a foil or as kind of a supporting player. I have a hard time with him when he's in it so much or whether he's kind of this this I I don't I don't know I guess I wouldn't say he's really the lead even though we're seeing this world through his eyes and he's you know falling for Faye and all of that I still think that the story ends up being more about Faye and Homer and Todd is really kind of just our you know our window into this world as we watch these other two characters but Still, I think that I enjoy watching him on this, but I enjoy him in smaller roles, I think. You know, I was I, I don't know. I think this was the I, I'm I'm with you. I usually like him in, in smaller roles and as that foil character and you know, he'll he'll never be you know, he, he in my head it's a, it's hard to shake Walter Peck. Yeah. Uh you know, his sort of legendary role in Ghostbusters. Um Right, right. But uh, in this one, I, I I struggled. I think I I think I got over it. I think maybe watching this film a second time would would help. Um, but but I think I got over seeing him as sort of the the early kind of leading man uh, type. It was a stretch, um, yeah. and I think he he sort of embraced being typecast as that kind of foil. He's done a lot of work and and uh, has a, a deep catalog, and they you know there I think there are a few roles that sort of mimic what he's done here. Um, but it was it was mostly interesting to see him as a such a young man. Yeah, um, right. It's a complex role because at one point, you know, you're right, we he's he's sort of the leading man in this film, but also not our protagonist necessarily. Like if right. we can say there's one in this film. Um you know, the the sequence when he kind of loses his head and and goes after Faye. Uh, at yeah. the campfire is um certainly a horrifying moment well it's, it's hard to i mean yeah it's hard to really like him much after that yeah that's what i was gonna say it's hard to recover any feeling of sen- uh, like any sort of affinity that i may have had for him after that moment is pretty much gone even though you know they've already set me up 
to believe that she's kind of a floozy and that you know there you feel like there is a there there's a stereotype they're trying to set in that relationship uh and uh it it sort of doesn't work on all fronts and i don't know if it's because um you know i'm watching it with the sensibilities of a you know 2013 2014 uh there's my first mistake (laughs) Uh, but uh, but it doesn't it doesn't hold up and it makes me sort of not know who to follow in this film going you know after that point yeah i mean do you see anybody as i mean is there anybody else that you follow as kind of a protagonist in this film well i mean it is kind of his journey as as he comes into this world but there's nobody else likable well, no, I mean it. It is hard to really like any of the of the characters. I mean, to a certain extent, I could say that it's Faye. You know, she's she's the first the first person we see. I mean, it's her. You know, she is our first image of the film. Right. Uh, I, it could be Faye. I mean, as as flighty as she is, uh, but I don't know if her transition leads me to believe that it really was her. I don't know. This is one of those films that is it's based on a novel that it feels much more novelistic than uh, screenplay. You know, it, right. it feels like they took the novel and made the novel and they weren't worried about fitting it into any three act structure or they weren't worried about, OK, well, let's rework this a little bit. So our protagonist is clear and people can connect with them and they make it through like it doesn't feel like it has quite the right structure for it. It does feel more like a novel where you've got an interesting uh, number of characters that we're following over the course of it. Todd, Faye, Homer, even her father, Harry. I mean, to a certain extent, there's a number of these characters that we're kind of following over the course of the story that I think could all have moments of being the protagonist in the film. But I, I don't know if I'd say any of them are. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I, you know, to back to your point where you know it could be that we're we're meant to follow Faye. Structurally, it doesn't work as a film because she is played as such a floozy. Yeah, she's not strong enough uh, to be somebody I think that we care about at the level of of kind of a protagonist. And maybe that's the the uh, kind of the the fault of the um, adaptation. Well, and and she does, yeah, and I've never read the book, so I can't say. But and she doesn't, she doesn't really have a big change. I mean, yes, she kind of yeah. at the end, as you know, she runs off and and comes back to his apartment after he's moved out, and kind of has that look. But at the same time, it's just like I don't think that she's gone through any big change. Not that your protagonist has to go through a change, but I don't think that there was much growth in her. It seems to be more him. Uh, Todd is the one who grew and changed over the course of the film. Um, but still, he's just maybe it's just that he's just not as likable pr- a protagonist as we want him to be. Maybe that's what it is. Well, yeah, he's not as likable, and she doesn't want it bad enough. Yeah. And Homer, it, I mean, you know... Homer kills an androgynous boy with his feet. <laughs> And he doesn't come into the story until like 45 minutes. Exactly. So it's hard to call him much of the protagonist. I mean, he certainly is an interesting character from that point forward. And see, that's another thing. It's like the film, the way that it is structured, like it moves from character to character in such a way that you're not, you're not, yeah, you're not sitting with Todd uh, for 
huge chunks of the film where it feels like it's Todd's film. Like once we meet Homer, we stay with Homer for a while and we kind of get to know him a little bit before we go back to Todd. So it, it feels less, uh, you know, modern screenplay. It definitely has more of a novel feel to it. Absolutely. So, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, in a case like a film, um, that's working like this. I think having more of this kind of vignette sort of feel as we go through these different situations, I think, I think it can work. I think, uh, for me, Burgess Meredith is a real highlight of the film. Yeah. He's, he's pretty fantastic in this film. I mean, he was nominated for, he was nominated for an Oscar uh, in this film. He, uh, uh, it's an interesting role playing this, this kind of former vaudevillian salesman sort of guy. And I think for me, the, the biggest moment of tragedy is seeing him at his funeral when his face is, I mean, talk about frightening. I mean, he painted himself to look like a clown earlier as he's kind of drunk and dancing around his room. When he's in his coffin, it, he looks more clownish with the makeup that he has in his, in his coffin than he did when he was painting himself up as a clown. Yeah. That was, that's gruesome. Yeah. That's just horrible. It was, it was pretty frightening. Uh, but Burgess Meredith is always fun to watch. Well, it is. And you know, the, the reason I bring him up, uh, right now is that, you know, if you look at any character who is sort of likable, um, it's him. We we don't get. I, I mean, he tells some pretty dark stories, uh, but you see a guy who's just trying to make ends meet, and he's trying to do it in a way the only way he knows how, and that's that's sort of a fringed tale. You know, it's yeah. like it it's the ta- the only tale that this old man could could weave. Yeah, uh, is is by tapping his feet and selling a mystery elixir, right? Uh, you know, selling snake <laughs> oil. And watching right, him screw as... that up every single time he approaches somebody is just it's yeah. fantastic, you know, um, because he just doesn't have the dexterity for the uh, for the road show anymore. Right. That's tragic. It is tragic. It's a tragic moment. And the moment where you see him playing cards, I think uh, Todd comes into uh, their place to look for Faye. He sees... Um, uh, Harry in there playing cards with a couple old ladies. Something about that scene of the way they're playing cards and the way that, you know, Todd brings him a light to have in his place to give it a little more light and everything. Oh, and there's also the two, uh, the two um, Alaskan natives who he says were brought down from Hollywood or by Hollywood from Alaska to um, do reshoots on Nanak of the North. And so, and they they just never left, and so they're all sitting around this table playing cards. It felt very much like the card uh, game in Sunset Boulevard, where you have Gloria Swanson, Charlie Chaplin, uh, I can't remember who all's in that scene, um, Buster Keaton, all sitting. Actually, I don't know if Charlie Chaplin's in there, but you got all those great old faces sitting around the table, uh, playing cards, hanging out, reliving the old times. And it's just kind of there's a an element of sadness to it, you know. They're they're um, they're reliving the past without having moved on to the present, mm. and that's how Burgess Meredith. That's how his character feels to me. Yeah, I, yeah, I think that that characterizes that. Uh, well, <clears throat> we've talked a little bit about Karen Black already. I think I remember her most from. 
um, I mean, she's been in a lot of movies. I mean, Family Plot, Five Easy Pieces, Nashville. Um, the thing that always sticks out for me is Trilogy of Terror, which is, <laughs> I think, kind of funny that that's what I remember her for. But Trilogy of Terror was just one. You know, I have a thing for those those silly horror anthology films. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> I love them. And Trilogy of Terror is just one. She's, I think, uh, you know, fighting that little voodoo uh, um, troll thing in that one. It's just so fun. So silly. Good old Karen Black. She, she's she uh, been in a lot of stuff. She's been in a lot of stuff. Definitely somebody who's been around the block. And she owns this film. I mean, she... I think if her performance didn't come off right or if a different person played it, I don't know if the film would have had the same frightening intensity that it does. I think she brings something to the character of Faye Greener that is at at this at one time it's, you know, confident and brazen. At another time it's broken and angry. Another time it's jealous. I mean she just brings so many things to it. And I find it really fascinating to watch her moving through the film. I, uh, yeah, she, maybe, and, and there's some pretty horrific stuff at the end, but maybe the scariest part uh, of the film is her uh, singing to herself in her makeup mirror, <laughs> the Jeepers yeah. Creepers bit. Yeah. That is pretty creepy. Could you see Goldie Hawn playing that role? Goldie Hawn was offered that role. Turned <laughs> no, it- <laughs> no, I, I can't see that. It would have been very interesting because Goldie Hawn had just done um, uh, Sugarland Express with William Atherton, actually, just the year before. So it would have been very weird if it was those two. I, th- yeah, I actually okay. think Karen Black is is perfect for this. Uh, yeah, it was. Um, yeah, she has a great performance. I got totally sidetracked because I thought for a minute that Karen Black uh, was in Phantasm. Uh, but she wasn't. Mm. Uh, but then that made me think we should do it an Angus Scrim series uh, because it would be short but gross. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's been in like 50 things, but I can only think of a couple of movies I would want to do. <laughs> That's too funny. Okay. So uh, then we need to go back to the Day of the Locust. All right. Yes. Kathy, what are we talking about? Okay. okay. So what so would you like think it? of? Uh, yeah. Yeah, Karen Black we like. Yeah. Richard Dysart. Yeah, that I, was you know, that was speaking of our Richard Dysart. Says, yeah. Exactly. Uh, young man. Mm-hmm. Richard Dysart playing an older middle-aged young man, but I know him so much as an older older man. Mm-hmm. Uh and uh, I thought he was great as the uh kind of morally detached executive. Yeah. I think that's a good way to describe his character. Yeah. Um, I I I bought it. I bought the role. You know what I liked much about it was this, the role that he was creating uh, with, you know, with Todd. But when you see him come uh, unhinged uh, at the because uh, he's at the cockfight. Right, he's at the cockfight. When he just sort of comes unhinged at the cockfight, and you see him kind of that intensity build, and you see, you know, I think he he really conveyed this um, uh, this sense of a man who is well put together with all of the things that he can't say out loud. 
deep inside of him. You know what I mean? Um, like, why would he be at a cockfight, and why would he be enjoying it when he's? Well, you know what I mean? Yeah, and it, I think that's an interesting thing to bring up because he also earlier in the film brings Todd, um, his new protege, to like a you know a, a a party like this this kind of fancy party where they're watching stag films. Exactly. And, and it's, so it's it's that's what this world is about. It's like these people who are in it aren't getting enough of something, and so they're always looking for the next thing to kind of stimulate them a little bit, right? Yeah. So first it's these stag films, and the, all I can think about when I watch that scene is the fact that that uh, Mrs. Howell is the one who is basically the uh, the madam there. Right, right. right. Mrs. I was just Howell. like, oh, Mrs. Oh, Howell. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> From Gilligan's Island. That's brilliant. That's, all I can think about every time I see that scene is like, what is she doing? Well, you know, it's interesting that, so we have these two bits, right? This guy who shows up for, who, who you know, high, goes around and watches these stag parties. And then we have him go to the cockfights. And the the sort of third element is we see him, how just how desensitized he is when the entire set collapses and injures mm-hmm. a bunch of people. Right. Um, and... You know, I think that really beautifully encapsulates what the film is trying to get across here to me, uh, that, you know, the, Hollywood is really what you think it is, right? Yeah. It, there's right. no substance to it at all. And, right. uh, and And so we're going we're gonna to demonstrate that by showing you just how detached we are as we try to find some way to activate those nerve endings that are so long dead. Right, right. It just keeps upping to the point where it's essentially a the um, the press man narrating how excited the crowd is when they're tearing a man to pieces. And what was it he was saying? You, I, I don't remember. But he was. He, who were they waiting for? They were. They were. They talk, were just, he, he they kept were talking for, about. I think every time so a car, that. right? There's another car pulling up. There's another car pulling up, and he was like, "Oh, there's something going on across the street. This crowd, they really get excited." They, you know, it's just kind of that sort of stuff. I mean, it's a radio guy because obviously they, there was no TV back then. It's just the photographers. And then he was doing it all on the radio, talking about how excited the crowd was and how, you know, the the police are here and they've got everything under control and the crowd is just so excited. Who could it be? What's going on over there? I can't quite see. And it's just that energy of something exciting happening and he has no idea what it is, but he's just going to pitch it yeah. as something that's got to be great and uh, and amazing for everybody to enjoy without realizing matter. yeah without yeah without realizing and and essentially you're right it doesn't matter like you know like all the newspapers that no one's paying attention to nobody back home listening on the radio really cares that you know there's there's this man who's stomped a child to death and now is being torn apart by the crowd they just want to hear how exciting it is because ginger rogers just stepped out of her car that's what it was right yeah grim Grim, grim. So uh, let's see. Anybody else you want to uh, highlight as we talk about, as we uh, near the end of this conversation? Have we talked about uh, Waldo Salt at all? No. The screen, the screenwriter we for this. We haven't. You know, I'm glad you brought that. Hey, or John Schlesinger. We should. We need to talk. Yeah, about him. absolutely. Waldo Salt. Yeah. yeah he was. Uh, he was blacklisted <clears throat> for a little while, and uh, somehow he ended up making it through that relatively unscathed. And uh, 
I mean, he's written just, man, has he written a lot of great stuff. I mean, aside from this, Midnight Cowboy, Serpico, Coming Home. Um, what else did he do? He did, uh, I mean, things things like, you know, I think this may have been... Well, the Philadelphia shortly, story is uncredited. Yeah, Philadelphia story. I think he may have done some uh, things like Swiss Family Robinson and Ivanhoe as he was probably trying to you know make his way out of the the mess of the of the red scare and the blacklist and everything um but yeah i mean he's he's a guy who'd been around for a writing script since the 30s really <clears throat> he was a uncredited writer on the philadelphia story in 1940 he's a guy who was around for a long time and i think toward the end of the, his career i think are, are some of his strongest scripts that he wrote the ones that i really connect with and, um, you know, he, he did win a couple Oscars uh, for Coming Home and for Midnight Cowboy, where he obviously has worked with uh, Schlesinger before. And, uh, yeah, I think he's just one of those one of those writers that has some some good scripts in him that he cranked out and a lot of other solid work. Well, you can you can really feel uh, the craft in this film, I think, uh, in in terms of the, the craft of uh, adventurous narrative. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like he's uh-huh. he's he really was. You can you can feel like he was taking a risk. There's nothing, nothing formulaic about this film. Yeah, not at all, not at all. Uh, John Schlesinger. Yeah, he. <clears throat> excuse me. He had been. Uh, uh, gosh, he's been directing and acting, and I mean, he's been around for for quite a while. He directed. Uh, the last thing he directed was in 2000, the next big thing, which unfortunately, um, that was that Madonna, Rupert Everett movie. That was so bad that I walked out of it, which I rarely do, but it was just, it was really atrocious. It was atrocious. And then he, um, he passed should, away in 2003, but. I should tell you, and I'm that? not, I don't want to, I don't want to give anything away. But he actually directed one of my guilty pleasures. Oh, did he really? Mm-hmm. What could that be? I don't, know. I don't know. Do you want to try and guess? Because we have this series coming up. is a very brief series where we're going to toss each other a guilty pleasure. That's right. Uh, and and he's actually got one. So I'll leave you. I'll leave that. You see if you can figure that out. That'll be fun. And it's not the Falcon and the Snowman. Pacific Heights. <laughs> I'm not saying anything. That's right. You're not going to say anything. (laughs) But we have talked about him before because he did Marathon Man. That's right. Yeah. Which we liked a lot. And he did that right after he did this. Talk about an interesting pairing, right? Uh, Day of the Locust is this wandering film of negativity talking about the Hollywood industrial complex and how there is no soul uh, to Marathon Man, which is another really grim view of the 70s. Yeah, right. Both of these films really do kind of stand out as prime examples of films in the 70s. They really Day do. Of Locust and Marathon Man, yeah. Yeah. Definitely uh, do. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Um, any other specifics before we talk money? I, I I don't think so. I think that pretty much covers anything, except that, you know, Jackie Earl Haley is really frightening as the young boy, the androgynous child in this. Um, I mean, so much so that, I mean, he just, he creeps me out 
and I feel sorry for him at the same time. Like when I see the way that his mother is training him to do all these dances and everything, it just, it, you know, it's, it saddens me, but, um, but he just creeps me out and I, I'm not that upset when he gets stomped to death, I guess, as horrible as that is. But he just, oh, he's just such a spiteful little thing, isn't he? There's a thing, you know, I, I kept thinking about this movie is, uh, as I'm watching it about, you know, Haley's character, that, that here he is playing this role of this annoying, you know, kid striving for, you know, stardom. And I wonder just how close his relationship with his mother was to the relationship with his mother in this film. Mm. You know, like he he was obviously that age, and I, you know, anyway, um, right. we we know him. Uh, I think more recently. Uh, yeah, he kind of he's he lost uh, track of his career. You know, he kind of you know disappeared for uh, from ninety three until two thousand six when um, I think it was Sean Penn mentioned him when he was doing all the king's men he mentioned him to the director yeah. and uh they brought him in to be in all the king's men and then he was little children and got an oscar nomination and he, yeah his career was it's like a whole rebirth in his career which is exciting because i think he's just a fantastic actor and i really enjoy watching him but i mean you see some of his old stuff like um breaking away or the bad news bears i think that's where i first uh recognized him is from the bad news bears movies mm-hmm. that i saw as a kid um, and love so much. And it's just, those are fun to watch. And then recently, you know, in my Tom Cruise thing that I'm doing, um, he was in losing it, which is one of Tom Cruise early films. And it's an atrocious, atrocious film, uh, directed by Curtis Hansen. And, uh, it's, he's like a totally different character than I ever would have expected. Um, Jackie Earl Haley. So, I mean, he definitely, even as a young actor, I think was proving himself to be kind of, you know, a versatile, actor well versatile and, and then he comes back and he ends up doing you know after uh you know little children all the king's men he does semi-pro and then uh where i rediscovered him i had not made any connection to him even in all the king's men uh but uh, rediscovering with a mask on his face playing uh, yeah you know Rorschach Rorschach. in 2009 2009's watchman and he is um coming up in the reboot of robocop uh yeah. 2014 so yeah, yeah, he was perfect as Rorschach too. He really was. I yeah. I don't know. Am I one of a few people who loved that film? I I really enjoyed it. I I enjoyed it. I mean, I I enjoy it and the uh, the graphic novel, but it's uh it's not a movie I I feel like sitting through much very uh, often. But I think they did a great job with it. Yeah, me too. Right. Billy Barty Billy Barty was in this too, and it's <laughs> it's fun seeing him uh, in this. And it's gosh, you know. The scene at the cockfight with Billy Barty just, I don't know, there's something really disturbing about how he's taking care of that uh, chicken, trying to kind of bring it back. To when, he, when he, like, breathes on Breathes it in its or mouth something. or something, and then he's, like, licking its beak. And oh, that I, was just not right. It's like, oh, and, you know, this is, I, I don't know, I'm guessing that this film, I didn't check, but I'm guessing that it did not have uh, Humane Society reps on set. <laughs> It looks to me like it's a real cockfight. Yeah, that was grim. It was pretty. It, I mean, it it takes you right to the place where these people go to. You know, it really takes you to these awful things that they start watching and enjoying because they're kind of numb to the world. Yeah, totally. 
Um, but he he was terrific in this film. He is. He is. Uh, really is yeah. All right. How how did it do uh, in the box? You know, did you find any numbers on what it cost to make? I couldn't find any numbers on what it cost to make it. The film did come out May seventh, nineteen seventy five, um, and it, it looks like it made in nineteen seventy five dollars about seventeen point eight million which equates to adjusted about 70, almost 76 million. So it did pretty well for itself, but I couldn't find anything as to how much it cost. So I can't give the full comparison there. All right. Well, you know, do you recommend this to people? This is a film I would recommend to people um, with a warning. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. It's 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 not for everybody. It certainly is not a film that's for everybody. It's definitely a film that I think anyone who's interested in film uh it's a film that's worth investing some time in because it is an interesting look at old world Hollywood that also reflects very much all of Hollywood across the time. And uh but it's a hard film to watch. It's a uh um not something you just put on for fun. Um, but it's it's a really fascinating film. It is full of surreal imagery. That's something we didn't mention was like the the paintings that Todd does for his production design and how as the as basically Hollywood is burning down at the end, you have these moments where these characters, almost like from his paintings, are walking through the landscape and you see like it's almost like his imagery has come to life. And you see just just nutty surreal things and it's uh the whole film film is a very surreal look uh at at the dark gutter of hollywood the um let's see uh vincent canby the new york times uh calls it less con- a conventional film than it is a gargantuan panorama a spectacle that illustrates west's dispassionate prose with a fidelity to detail more often found in a jim cracky biblical epic than in something that so relentlessly ridicules american civilization this movie is far from subtle but it doesn't matter it seems that much more material was shot than could easily be fitted into the movie even at 144 minutes it is reality projected as fantasy. It is, it's grossness. It's bigger-than-life quality. It is, is so much a part of its style and what West was writing about that one respects the extravagances, the almost lunatic scale on which Mr. Schlesinger has filmed its key sequences. I really liked that part. Yeah, yeah, it's good. And I mean, it all fits with that whole biblical feel of the title of the film, The Day of the Locust. Right. It's like this this biblical plague has settled on the land of Hollywood and is is eating it alive. Yeah. Let's rank it. Let's. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You can follow us or friend us or whatever you need to do there. Flick us there and uh, see all the films that we have ranked and reviewed uh, over our years this will be an interesting one because i think it's a it's a film that really has stuck with me since i've seen it i don't think it's a film i would put on very often but i i think there's a lot to it so does that mean we're ranking this on um i think it's going to change cinematic importance no it, it i think it changes every time i think there are times where i feel a film's cinematic importance 
outweighs how much I like a film, but there are other times where I think how much I like a film outweighs another film's cinematic importance. Okay. I think that's fair to say. I think it is, too. All right, The Day of the Locust or Inside Man? Inside Man. I would go with Inside Man as well. The Day of the Locust or Miller's Crossing? Miller's Crossing. Yeah, I think I would go with Miller's Crossing. It's... um, Kind of a complicated story, but it is is fun to watch. The Day of the Locust or Your Next? The Day of the Locust. I would go with The Day of the Locust. That's the Day of the funny. Locust? <laughs> Why? Because, I, you know, I think it makes me want to go listen to Your Next show again. I like Your Next. I mean, it's, it's but, you know, I don't know. I, it's, it, it's definitely an easier film to watch than The Day of the Locust, as gruesome as it is. Yeah. But, but I just find that I would rather watch The Day of the Locust because I feel like I would end up getting more out of it at the end of the day. True. The Day of the Locust or Bullet? Bullet. I'm a little torn on this one, but I think I will lean Bullet just because of the car chase. The Day of the Locust or Christmas in Connecticut? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, let's see how to compare those two. <laughs> I'm gonna go Christmas in Connecticut on this one. Are ya? Yeah. I feel like I need to go the Day of the Locust. I I don't know. I'm a little torn. I just feel like there's so much going on in the Day of the Locust, and you have to admit the last 20 minutes of the Day of the Locust is like epic, horrifying cinema uh, at its finest. Yeah, I mean, I I'll, I I agree. <laughs> but you'll take romps in the snow and Sydney Green Street. I do like me some Sydney Green Street. I'll, you know what? I'm I'm going to give you this one because I'm kind of on the fence on it. But uh, but I, this I think is is a great example of importance of this yeah. discussion of cinematic importance because when you compare those two, there is no other way to compare those two films. Right. 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 That one really falls down to how much do you like Christmas in Connecticut? Right. <laughs> right. Uh, <you> know? <laughs> it's like, and it's a very fun film, but I can only watch that at Christmas time. Right. So, yeah. Okay. The Day of the Locust or Major League? <laughs> you go first. Uh, I, I feel like I would go the Day of the Locust only because Major League, I, I have so much fun with it, but it just, it always feels so dated. Major League feels dated compared to Day of the Locust? Day of what? the Locust? I mean, maybe it's because it's a period film. I don't know. And we didn't even mention John Barry's amazing music in that film or Conrad Hall's gorgeous cinematography on the film. I mean, it's, it's, it's a gorgeous film all across the board, the Day of the Locust, as horrifying as it is. But most of it's also kind of boring. I don't know. I found it so much less boring my second go around. All right, but I can't I can't rank it on second go arounds yet. I I'm not I know, there, I and and I don't Donald think... here Donald Sutherland or Charlie Sheen. Oh, criminy! <laughs> That's such an unfair thing to throw at you. All right, Day of the Locust. I hate you. <laughs> All right, the Day of the Locust or Thor: The Dark World. Thor. Now, exactly. Here is a moment where I'll go. I'll have a lot more fun watching Thor romp through the nine realms than watching 
Donald Sutherland stomp Jackie Earl Haley to death. <laughs> All right. The Day of the Locust, number 107 out of 129. Didn't crack. I'm not surprised that this didn't crack. I'm not surprised either. I think it didn't crack for the right reasons. Yeah, it's it's a hard film to get up there. I mean, I, you know, I would love to meet a person who has this as their favorite film. That it really takes you to a dark place. So maybe I wouldn't love to meet that person. <laughs> yeah, maybe you wouldn't. <laughs> I wonder how Jackie Earl Haley feels about this film. Uh, I'm I'm curious. You know, Donald Sutherland, who stomps the child to death, of course, ends up now running a dystopian future where he pits children to kill each other. Hey, I just make that enough. connection. Well done. Well done. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Uh, good talk. Where do we go from here? We're going to continue chatting about the wonderful Richard Dysart with the absolutely fantastic film Being There. I, I, I do like love this that. film a lot. Yeah, yeah it's one of my faves. Good one. Yeah. Uh, excellent. So, yeah, I guess that's it. You looking forward uh, to anything great this coming week? Um, no, not looking forward to anything. Good. <laughs> right the right level of uh, first world apathy. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. You heard it here first. Good talk. Good talk. <laughs> all right. Awesome. I got to go to bed. Night. Jeepers, creepers. <laughs> I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>